Broadcast friends, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on this Friday evening here on Republic Broadcasting and KHFX 1140 AM in Dallas-Fort Worth. So once again, thank you for tuning into tonight's broadcast. And it seems, as with so many of the things that we document here every single night on Corbett Report Radio or every single week on my Corbett Report podcast or through my videos and all of the other pieces of information that we put together, it seems that the world is spinning out of control. And it seems there are so many things happening on a macroeconomic and a geopolitical scale over which we seem to have no control. And of course, earlier this week on this very broadcast, we were going over the idea of learned helplessness and how to combat that feeling that there's nothing we can do and that everything that we do is futile. And one of the best ways to do that is to take these large subjects, these macroeconomic things, these terrorist events, these geopolitical wranglings that go on behind the scenes, and take them and put them into perspective of individuals living everyday lives who have control over what they do in their everyday life. That's an important point to remember for everyone out there. You have control over what you do. You have control over where you put your money. You have control over what you invest your time in. And you also have control over what you put in your body. Or at least you do to a certain extent, because of course the government presumes to have the authority to say what you can and can't put in your body. But for the most part, we do have that kind of control and we have to exercise what freedoms we have in that arena or we risk losing them altogether as I lose my voice. So I want to start off tonight with a very interesting quotation from Henry Kissinger that uh, I think puts this all quite succinctly. And in the 1970s, Kissinger was alleged to have said, quote, who controls the food supply controls the people. Who controls the energy can control whole continents. Who controls money can control the world. Well, tonight we're not interested in the control of continents or the control of the world. Tonight we are interested in the control of the people. And in that formulation, it is the control of the food supply which dictates the control of the people. And I think there are many different ways that we can tease out that particular power grab by the people who want to control the food supply. But first of all, a word of caution, because this is uh, something that I have taken up as a pet cause in some of my previous podcast episodes, as some of you might know. I don't like to give quotations when there is no source. And as far as I can tell, there is no attribution. There is no source for that Kissinger quote. So until I hear otherwise, it could have just been made up out of whole cloth. It has been widely cited, but again, just because everyone says that someone said something does not mean someone actually said something. So hopefully, maybe there's a listener out there who will be able to provide a source for that quotation. But anyway, regardless of whether or not it's uh, it's something that Kissinger said or something that's just been falsely attributed to him, I think it is nonetheless quite true and quite an apt observation because certainly the control of the food supply does dictate a certain amount of control of the population, the people. What happens on our in our kitchens and what we put into our bodies very much affects us on all sorts of levels. 
And again, I think that's something that we all understand to varying degrees. And it's something that we went over on Food World Order a couple of weeks ago here on the broadcast with James Evan Pilato of foodworldorder.com, where we went over that story where, shock, surprise, scientists have discovered that, yes, the food that you eat actually does affect you at even the DNA level. It actually really affects your body and what happens within it. Well, of course, we've always known that, and that's reflected even in our language with such phrases as you are what you eat. But think of the ramifications of that, and if you can control the food supply, and if you can control what people do or don't put in their mouths, and what they do or don't digest, well, you do have an incredible control over that population. So once again, we're going to be talking about the control of the food and the control of the people tonight on Corbett Report Radio. And as always, we'll be getting into some positive news and some solutions that you can use to help combat this control. Right, friends, we're back here on Corbett Report Radio tonight going over the control of the food supply and thus the control of the people in Kissinger's infamous formulation or the one that's been attributed to him. So we are going through that concept. And uh, as this is Friday night, you know the drill by now. This is going to be Corbett Report highlights where we go through the, uh, the CorbettReport.com archives for some of the work that I've done on the past on various issues. So let's get straight into it with a clip from episode 41 of my podcast, which was, which was released back in May of 2008. And it was on the topic of food is a weapon. And speaking of Heinz Kissinger, well, he would know what he's talking about in terms of control of the food supply, because, of course, he penned a very famous document talking about controlling the population through food supply. So in this part of episode 41, we start on the... uh, I start by talking about Thomas Malthus's famous essay on the principle of population, talking about the overpopulation fraud, which I've gone over before, and we lead into Kissinger's infamous document. Again, just a flavor of how this thinking has continued to percolate down through the centuries into the elite of our current age comes from this report from the Schiller Institute at schillerinstitute.org entitled Henry Kissinger's 1974 Plan for Food Control Genocide. It reads in part, quote, On December 10, 1974, the U.S. National Security Council under Henry Kissinger completed a classified 200-page study, National Security Study Memorandum 200, Implications of Worldwide Population Growth for U.S. Security and Overseas Interests. The study falsely claimed that population growth in the so-called lesser-developed countries was a grave threat to U.S. national security. Adopted as official policy in November 1975 by President Gerald Ford, NSSM 200 outlined a covert plan to reduce population growth in those countries through birth control and also, implicitly, war and famine. Brent Scowcroft who had by then replaced Kissinger as national security advisor, the same post Scowcroft was to hold in the Bush administration, was put in charge of implementing the plan. CIA Director George Bush was ordered to assist Scowcroft, as were the Secretaries of State, Treasury, Defense, and Agriculture. There were several measures that Kissinger advocated to deal with this alleged threat, most prominently birth control and related population reduction programs. He also warned that population growth rates are likely to increase appreciably before they begin to decline, 
even if such measures were adopted. A second measure was curtailing food supplies to targeted states, in part to force compliance with birth control policies. There is also some established precedent for taking account of family planning performance in appraisal of assistance requirements by AID, the U.S. Agency for International Development, and consultative groups. Since population growth is a major determinant of increases in food demand, allocation of scarce PL480 resources should take account of what steps a country is taking in population control as well as food production. In these sensitive relations, however, it is important in style as well as in substance to avoid the appearance of coercion. Mandatory programs may be needed, and we should be considering these possibilities now, the document continued, adding, Would food be considered an instrument of national power? Is the U.S. prepared to accept food rationing to help people who can't slash won't control their population growth? End quote. Oh, yes, friends. Surprise, surprise. Henry Kissinger and his cohorts don't love you. And uh, as I go on to urge in that episode, I do uh, once again here urge people to go and read the actual NSSM 200 document for yourselves to find out more about Kissinger's plan. But moving from the theoretical to the specific, how is this actually implemented? Let's take a listen to episode 59 of my podcast, which was also released in 2008, talking about the Codex Alimentarius, a unelected bureaucracy that seeks to try to standardize food safety across the world. This is the latest imported Chinese food product to be withdrawn from Australian supermarket shelves, Kirin Milk Tea. Consumers are advised not to drink it and keep the tea away from children. It's the fourth imported food item from China to be withdrawn from Australian supermarkets. Last year, nearly 4,000 pets died in the United States after eating pet food contaminated with melamine from Chinese ingredients. The Retail Grocers Association says the warning signs about melamine contamination have been around for over a year and Australian authorities should have moved faster. It was not only pet food, it was also food that was made for human consumption. They, the FDA, brought this to the American people's attention in April of 2007. So far, there are no reports of Australians becoming ill from eating any of the four withdrawn products. Our advice for consumers is don't consume the white rabbit lollies or the koala biscuits. Do dispose of them safely. But if you have eaten them, look, it's not a long-term, it's not a major safety risk. Is there a safe level of ingestion of this? I don't believe there is. Um, if there's a safe ingestion level of rat droppings, do I want to get my diet up to a point where I'm eating up to the, the safe ingestion level of rat droppings? I don't think so. The Australian Consumers Association says the globalisation of food industries is producing big challenges for food safety authorities, especially when it comes to monitoring pesticides. Today, Chinese milk products were still being withdrawn from supermarkets throughout the world, and the signs are that more products may yet be recalled. This is, of course, an extremely disturbing trend, and one that affects us at the most basic biological level, that is, at our daily intake of food. Unless, of course, that is, you listen to the talking heads of MSNBC and other members of the controlled corporate media, that's right, apparently, tainted food is actually a good thing. 
about inflation, that's another interesting point because a lot of people like to say uh, scaremonger about China, right? A lot of politicians, and I know you talk about that issue all the time. I think people should be careful what they wish for on China. You know, if China were to revalue its currency or China is to start making, say, toys that don't have lead in them or food that isn't poisonous, their costs of production are going to go up, and that means prices at Walmart here in the United States are going to go up too. So I would say China is our greatest friend right now. They're keeping prices low and they're keeping prices from mortgages Well, assuming that we don't buy into that propagandistic garbage, the problem of tainted food is, of course, a very real one. So it seems that we have the problem, that is, those naughty manufacturers in China slipping melamine and other tainted goods into our food supply, which, of course, is increasingly global in scope. And we now have a reaction. We are upset and concerned by this and want it to stop. Well, there must be a solution. What are they going to do about it? Well, luckily, those wonderful concerned people at the World Health Organization have an answer. It's called Codex Alimentarius. And in fact, it's been around for a very long time. Since 1963, in fact. You can find out more about Codex Alimentarius by going to their homepage at codexalimentarius.net, where you can read right on their front page that, quote, the Codex Alimentarius Commission was created in 1963 by FAO and WHO to develop food standards, guidelines, and related texts such as codes of practice under the joint FAO-WHO food standards program. The main purposes of this program are protecting health of the consumers and ensuring fair trade practices in the food trade, and promoting coordination of all food standards work undertaken by international governmental and non-governmental organizations. End quote. Reading through the various information available online, both at the Codex Elementarius site and others, it can quickly be determined that Codex Elementarius was essentially set up as an international trade commission, an extension of the UN operating under their World Health Organization and Food and Agriculture Organization. All of this sounds so far so good, and a potential solution to the problem of tainted food being added to the global food supply by countries with lax food standards. Now, the Codex Alimentarius, being a branch of the WHO, FAO, and ultimately the UN, is of course merely international trade guidelines and have no regulatory force. However, looking at the World Trade Organization website, it can be found that the WTO has in fact adopted the Codex Alimentarius as part of its trade agreement. From a page from the WTO website entitled The WTO and the FAO-WHO Codex Alimentarius, the following can be found. Quote, the WTO's SPS agreement states that to harmonize sanitary and phytosanitary measures on as wide a basis as possible, members shall base their sanitary or phytosanitary measures on international standards, guidelines, or recommendations. The agreement names the joint FAO-WHO Codex Alimentarius as the relevant standard-setting organization for food safety. End quote. Indeed, regulating international trade guidelines for food safety is not the only thing that the Codex Alimentarius does. It also has branches which operate in highly diverse fields related to food safety, including biotechnology, which of course is the bland-sounding euphemism for genetically engineered food. 
On the FAO.org website, there's a page called Biotechnology GM Food, which says the following, quote, In 1999, the Codex Alimentarius Commission established an ad hoc intergovernmental task force on foods derived from biotechnology to consider the health and nutritional implications of such food. It is tasked with developing standards, guidelines, or recommendations, as appropriate, for foods derived from biotechnology or traits introduced into foods by biotechnology. End quote. It seems, then, that the Codex Alimentarius is an extremely large organization with branches and tentacles that affect basically all aspects of food preparation and international trade. Surprising, then, that so few people have heard of this Codex Alimentarius, and that's perhaps because it does not bear much scrutiny before revealing some very disturbing secrets. Friends, welcome back to the broadcast. You are tuned into Corbett Report Radio here on this Friday evening, and we are going through Friday night highlights, looking at CorbettReport.com's work in the past on a given topic. And tonight's topic is food. Control the food and you control the people. So we've taken a look at Her Kissinger's NSSM 200, his strategic plan for controlling food supplies and uh, trying to control population thereby. We've looked at the WHO, uh, sorry, the WHO, the FAO, the WTO monstrosity known as Codex Alimentarius, this unelected bureaucracy that deigns to try to have control over the world's food supply. Well, let's look at something a little bit different. Let's look at an NAIS system. And this is a system that was uh, proposed by the USDA as a way of tracking and yes, even electronically tagging cattle in order to track them through their lifetime. And uh, this is not only, of course, a bureaucratic nightmare, it's also a nightmare for small farmers who then would be forced to chip their animals under such a scheme in order to, uh, to comply with government regulations. Of course, it's just a way of trying to force small farmers out of the market and make it more expensive to hold the cattle, to tag the cattle, I should say, than to actually just farm. So uh, it, it becomes ridiculous. Back in 2000, 2009, we had a chance to talk to Bill Bullard of RCAF USA uh, about this uh, problem and about the solutions that, uh, that were being proposed at that time to this very, very terrible idea. Well, the NAIS stands for the National Animal Identification System, or NACE, and this is a proposal uh, by the U.S. Department of Agriculture to require every livestock owner to first register their real property on a national federal database and then to begin registering and tracking the movements of every animal that they own. So a cattle producer, for example, would need to register in a national database and then obtain a federal identification number to affix to their, each of their livestock and then every time that livestock is moved from one location to another, the producer would be required to report to the federal government about that livestock movement. 
So this is a overly intrusive government program that we believe infringes upon the rights and privileges of independent cattle producers across the United States. The program is touted as a means of improving our ability to contain and control disease outbreaks in the U.S. However, the centerpiece of the NACE is an international ear tag called an 840 ear tag that would be required to be applied to every animal. And that international ear tag has nothing to do whatsoever with disease traceback. In fact, that ear tag supplants what has been a time-proven and historically successful disease control program here in the United States that used to rely on a metal ear tag clip that was affixed to the animal, and that clip had a number that designated the specific state the animal came from and had a code designating the actual local veterinarian that applied the tag when the animal was very young. So under the existing program, if a disease outbreak occurs, any official could look at that metal tag and know exactly which of the 50 states that animal came from, make a phone call to that state, and the state veterinarian could immediately initiate quarantine or control measures necessary to prevent the spread of the disease. But this NACE replaces all of that with an international ear tag that gives no information, no helpful information, unless one first has access to a computer to access the database that's going to contain well over 100 million animals and hope that there's no error in the data just to determine what state the animal came from. This NACE is actually going to reduce our ability to contain and control diseases in the United States. And if the USDA were serious about improving our disease traceback capabilities, they would follow our eight-point plan, which number one says you first need to prevent the introduction of foreign animal diseases into the United States. And what USDA is doing right now contradicts that. In fact, they are knowingly allowing cattle from Canada that are of high risk for BSE or mad cow disease into the United States. Their own risk study uh, predicts that we will introduce 19 infected animals as a result of the relaxed policy with respect to Canada's BSE problem. We also know that we are knowingly introducing bovine tuberculosis into the U.S. cattle herd every year because we continually allow Mexican cattle to come into the United States, even though they are known uh, to be infected with tuberculosis in Mexico. So it is contradictory for USDA to say we need this new measure to control diseases when, in fact, USDA has relaxed restrictions that are now allowing the reintroduction of diseases on a daily basis in the United States. So the first thing we need to do is protect against the introduction of disease, a preventive measure, by maintaining strict border controls, um, and then we need to improve upon the pre-existing system that have really gained the envy of the world in, with our ability to effectively control and eradicate diseases uh, within the U.S. cattle herd, and, and we're the largest beef producer in the world, and we do have a, an exemplary system uh, that we should not be tinkering with as USDA is proposing under this name.
Welcome back to Corbett Report Radio, and tonight we're going over the food supply and controlling the people through various means. And just before that break, we were listening to Bill Bullard of RCAF USA talking about the proposed uh, USDA plan for tracking and chipping all of the uh, cattle in America as a way of trying to track their movements. Uh, Ridiculous, laborious, and of course costly system that would serve no purpose other than to really force small farmers out of uh, small ranchers out of the business. And we we talked about the ridiculous nature of that legislation. Well, here here's a story with good news because, in fact, it the story doesn't end there in 2009. Of course, it continues to develop. And uh, because of the incredible backlash that was coming out, they had to at least appear to back down from that. So in 2010, we got this story from New York Times. USDA plans to drop program to trace livestock, talking about their, uh, their backing down from this NAIS system, at least overtly. So once again, back in 2010, I had the chance to interview Bill Bullard about the news that the NAIS system was being officially dropped. Well, we're very pleased with the latest USDA decision because that decision has essentially abandoned this onerous program and is now focused on moving forward to improve disease traceability. And we believe we now have the opportunity to expand and build upon the pre-existing disease traceback systems that we've been using in the United States for decades uh, to control animal diseases. So we think we have uh, will have imparted a level of reasonableness uh, and prudence in this process, and we're looking forward to working with USDA to improve upon our existing systems uh, to enhance our ability to conduct a disease traceback in the event of a disease outbreak. And very importantly, we're looking forward to USDA's uh, strengthening of our import restrictions in the process of announcing that they are going to strike off in a new direction Regarding NACE, the USDA secretary also stated that he recognizes a need to strengthen import restrictions to prevent the introduction of diseases into the United States livestock herd. And that is something that we have been fighting to achieve uh, for the last decade. Well, once again, friends, it's just another example. We stand up, they back down, and it happens again and again and again, as I've attempted to show on this broadcast through numerous uh, different programs that we've done in the recent past. But there's another example. The people stand up and say no, and the USDA has to back down, at least for the time being. And of course, once again, I'd like to stress that it's not like you can simply uh, claim victory and walk away from it and stop caring about these types of issues because inevitably it's a war of attrition and they're just waiting for people to get complacent so that they can strike again. So of course the uh, the NAIS system is still uh, it's on the books. It's on the on the car in the cards. They're still trying to play that. Of course it no longer goes by the NAIS name, but it's still NAIS in all but name. And we can get a taste of that from the aptly named website NAISSucks.com. Also, NAISstinks.com, I guess, either way. Um, and they have a, an article from just the last December, just uh, two months ago, eight days of opposition to USDA's proposed mandatory animal identification rule. And that's uh, penned by RCAF USA CEO Bill Bullard, who, of course, we were just listening to. So uh, once again, you can go and read that and basically read about how they're trying once again, the old bait and switch, trying to once again make sure that uh, that they can get their tracking systems in place 
uh, through a different name and a different program. So the process starts all over again. But once again, as I've stressed before, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. And that means that we can't back down and we can't just say that we've won the day. So let's pack up. It means that we have to continue to stand up and fight and, uh, and fight against all of these ridiculous draconian legislative ideas they have always up their sleeves. There's always another one coming along the line. But more on the lines of solutions. Of course, what is the fundamental solution to these problems? Well, the fundamental solution, if the problem is the centralization of control and authority that the government claims to have in such organizations as the USDA, the Department of Agriculture, which can presume to tell cattle uh, ranchers that they all have to, for example, chip their cattle in order to, uh, to comply with the latest legislation. Well, of course, the the answer to that is decentralization of getting away from this industrial farming mindset and these big bureaucratic uh, departments and and bureaucracies that try to rule over everyone and try to tell them how to live their lives in so many different ways including what to put in their mouths and the best way to decentralize is to take action yourself. Once again, the true power in all of this comes from looking in the mirror and deciding that you're not going to wait for that angel to come down from the heavens and offer you everything you want. Instead, it means rolling up your sleeves and doing the work yourself. And in this case, what else could it mean but starting to try to grow your own food, starting communities where you can trade with each other at the local level to source those ingredients that you need to put on your plate to keep yourself in house and home and and keep yourselves healthy. And uh, that's the only way you can know what you're ingesting, and that's the only way you can have control over what you're ingesting. So it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And on that note, I had the chance uh, back in uh, 2010 again to interview... Uh, Dan Fox, and he was the uh, uh, editor of a magazine called Urban Garden Magazine, which actually published the transcript of my uh, video that's gone semi-viral online, the When False Flags Don't Fly video. And uh, unfortunately, I've just seen in a recent update on their website just from last week that Urban Garden Magazine, I guess, is no more. It seems they've stopped publication which is too bad because it was a very, very interesting magazine, not only, of course, dedicated to revolutionary uh, idea of growing your own food and all of the things surrounding that, but also quite de- dedicated to revolutionary politics and and uh, talking about the economic system and, and how do we can reform it and things like that. But really, really interesting uh, mix and it's a a big loss to see that go. But back in 2010, I did have the chance to uh, interview the editor of Urban Garden magazine about how people can take it into their own hands to start growing their own food and getting off of this system of control. I, I, I walk into a supermarket and the last thing I hear, a sigh of relief when I see um, shelves packed full of fresh produce. And I think... I'd like to hear more sighs of relief because most of us are so completely reliant on the supermarket that if the food was to be taken away, we would surely starve. I don't mean to be alarmist, but it's important to note that layered on top of this, we're completely reliant on a fiat currency debt-based dollar system, money that's not representative of anything of intrinsic value like, well, gold and silver it used to be, but money that a form of money that's totally reliant on, that's totally based on debt, controlled by private banks. And it's this money that's going around in debt circles and ever being devalued that we're all reliant on to survive. 
I mean, a visiting extraterrestrial might be forgiven for equating life on planet Earth with a system of normalized slavery. There you have it. Yeah, well, that's that's exactly right. And that's something that obviously I've turned to time and again in my podcast, in my work. And I have talked about uh, the, the value of starting a garden or starting something indoors before to my listeners, because it certainly is uh, a, not only a, a revolutionary act, but I, I would say sort of a necessary act in, in the current climate, especially the current economic climate. How, how could you afford not to have some sort of backup and to start building those communities that will be necessary at some point when we start to, to get ourselves off of the system that's been created for us? But uh, unfortunately, I, I must admit that uh, perhaps uh, I'm not walking the walk. I am a bit of a hypocrite. I, I don't have any plants growing in my apartment. What would you say to someone who's right now starting from base zero with uh, two, two black thumbs and no green thumbs and uh, has never actually tried to do this before. What would you say to someone who's just starting out in this? Well, if I can do it as a supermarket kid of the 70s, then I really believe that anybody can. Growing plants um, and saving seeds, and we've been doing this for, for millennia, and we're all living proofs of that. The fact is that over the last 100 years, Society has changed a great deal and, and many people have moved from agricultural-based communities into urban-based communities. And as such, we've lost that connection. I mean, it's, it's talked about very often. Um, it's interesting to note that at school, I wasn't taught how to grow my own food. I was given careers advice. I, was, I took psychometric tests and they said, Dan, you should be a lorry driver or truck driver in America. Um, or I'm given advice on, uh, I don't know, physics and maths and stuff that I rarely use in everyday life. Um, but we're not really told very much about money issuance, and we're not told very much about growing our own food. Um, so for someone just starting out, obviously subscribe to the magazine. I'm only kidding. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there's so much information on the Internet on, on growing your own food start simple start with an easy crop um and like for instance lettuce is i mean you really have to try not to grow lettuce uh just grab yourself a small planter you don't have to go hydroponics just buy some potting soil um and and grab some seeds and find a sunny window or buy a t5 um high output fluorescent grow light which are very efficient. They use maybe 55 watts of energy. And here in BC, the growing season is really short. So I love my fluorescent grow lights just for starting off seedlings and getting them up to kind of teenage size before um, hardening them off and, and putting them outside and getting a head start on all my neighbors. Um, it really is so much fun, and it really does connect you with Back with nature. I hear these talks of people talking about the nature deficit syndrome. And much that I hate these um, created maladies, um, I do believe that many of us are suffering from something that could be described as that. Um, start easy, start small. It's wonderful to, to be a caretaker of a plant. Um, and I think it's really part of our heritage. And it's a wonderfully therapeutic thing to do when you get in from work or whether you do other things with your daily life. So the main thing I can say is get your hands dirty. And if you want to try hydroponics, there are 
all sorts of amazing small systems that can help you grow three to four times the amount of produce in the same square footage. So space and, oh, I've only got a small apartment, these aren't excuses that, that we listen to. Um, we're urban garden after all, so we <laughs> believe everyone should grow. Well, well, you did uh, sort of jestingly suggest people subscribe to the magazine, but I, I would actually like to, to wholeheartedly suggest that because uh, having received a copy myself, I can say that it, it has an incredible amount of uh, information and some very useful essays and things in, in, inside each issue. Why don't you run through a typical issue and what sorts of things people can expect to encounter in there? Well, sure. Um, and I'll send you over some PDFs as well so you can um, take a look. But I mean, the issue I sent you, which was... Uh, how to Become a Better Grower, I believe. It was our Head Candy Summer Special. Um, we, I mean, we, uh, as I say, we do have some um, political stuff in there as well. We'll show people how to um, take cuttings from their favorite plants, how to grow using aeroponics. That's where you've just got plants growing in mist, uh, like a nutrient mist. We'll talk about how to plan your garden, how to grow indoors and outdoors, how to work with your plants how how do you know if it's too humid or you're overwatering or you're underwatering um what effect does um does the ph of your soil or your nutrient solution have on your plants and then we'll like we'll focus in on on specific crops that people like to grow like basil tomatoes and all the all the stuff that we love to fill our salad bowls um and then at the end yeah we'll we we're a no-holds-barred no publication. We'll, we'll tackle the issues that other mainstream um, outlets are afraid to talk about. And we were one of the first magazines in North America to discuss peak oil. Um, we'll talk about what's happening in Gaza. We'll talk about the, the propaganda from Fox News and the power of television. We were all born with televisions in our languages, by the way. We, we don't realize how powerful it is to have this box with moving images accompanied with sound pumping out um, opinions and ideas for most of the day. And of course, we published your, your amazing essay, uh, False Flags Don't Fly, which is kind of how we got connected. Um, people say, you know, Dan, why don't you stick to hydroponics? Why do you have to put in the political crap, as they politely put <laughs> it? And I'm not a political activist. I don't, I don't have any drum to bang, but this is information that needs to to be spread. It needs to be discussed. Um, food is intrinsically linked to many of the political issues that are going on in the world. Um, and I'm concerned that, you know, that for all, all the amazing power of the Internet, I think it, it as much supports apathy as it does activism. Um, you know, I'm sure with any Facebook user seeing the groups that you can join, I bet I can find one million of us that think George Bush is a warmongering criminal. And I'm there thinking, only a million? Hmm. Um, hmm. And, okay, let's say you, you reach your one million mark. What then? It seems we have to start with the basics. We have to take care of growing our own food within our communities. I'm not talking about us all becoming hippies, and not that that would be a bad thing, but, you know, and all of us going back to the, la to the land, but we do have to take responsibility for our food. Otherwise, we're no better than metaphorical cattle at the trough of the industrial food system, just 
being fed and, and munching on whatever's put in front of us. And if we can continue sleepwalking down this road, then we're going to find, I think, historical precedent shows us that the privately controlled money system will be used to manipulate the masses, as it is already, and we will be signing up to get our subsidies, government-subsidized Big Macs and quarter-pounder burgers, because that's the only food that we can afford. And, you know, we only have to look back to the 70s to think of Henry Kissinger's famous quote, control food and you control the people, control oil, you control nations. I think he said it in the other way around, but um, it's a very, very telling. Um, we can prate all we like about civil liberties, but unless we're taking con uh, responsibility and control of our food supply, we're like a baby complaining that its mother isn't using quilted andrex to wipe its backside. First, we need to start looking after ourselves, and then we can take things from there. Absolutely right, friends. It is baby steps at first, and then once you get the hang of it, you can increase the uh, the tempo, so to speak. And really, it is a long and arduous process. This is not a silver bullet that's going to magically change the world overnight. It's a long, hard process that we have to devote ourselves to, and myself included. So once again, the solution starts at home. And on that note, we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back here to finish things up on Corbett Report Radio. of tonight's broadcast and here we are in the closing minutes of another week of Corbett Report Radio so once again thank you for tuning in and of course I would once again suggest that you uh, start at CorbettReport.com slash radio as your starting guide for exploring the issues we've been talking about tonight and getting the source documents for all of the podcast episodes and interviews that we've been listening to so you can go and explore some of this more thoroughly but, uh, but having said that, I certainly hope that we've made the point today that if food is a weapon and if it can be used for control over the population, well, then it's a weapon that cuts both ways in exactly the same way that the Internet that allows the, uh, the elite, so-called, the, the, the powers that shouldn't be, to monitor everything we do and to try to track and trace and control and database every moment of our lives so that they can feed them into their sentient world simulation and, and presume to be able to predict the future and all of the other craziness that they talk about openly in their own white papers that uh, that people will call conspiracy theory simply because they can't bother themselves to actually look into. 
Well, in the same way that that technology can both be used for their purposes, it can also be used for our purposes. We can create websites, we can create podcasts, we can send emails, we can reach out to people around the globe for almost no cost whatsoever in ways that are unthinkable in any other time of human history. And we can really and truly begin a global mental liberation. Once again, the mental revolution being the only thing that matters. And in the exact same way, if they can use food as a weapon to try to control the population, and to try to make them compliant and to try to feed them garbage that will only pollute their bodies and make them uh, mentally uh, inferior, well, then the exact same way we can use that weapon ourselves in order to arm ourselves and to properly feed ourselves. And once again, that means rolling up your sleeves and getting your uh, hands dirty, but uh, it's a long and hard process, but it's one that we have to engage in. So having said that, I would just want to, want to once again remind everyone out there that uh, I rely on your support to keep myself going and growing in this alternative media environment. Unfortunately, this does not just fund itself. So if you do appreciate this information and you want to support the work, of course, uh, the best way to do that is to sign up for a subscription as low as 100 Japanese yen a month. That's about a buck fifty a month or even less. You can truly make a difference in helping to fund this work. And if you do become a subscriber, in the near future, you will also get the chance to get first dibs and a, a discount on my forthcoming uh, Corbett Report Video Archive 2010 edition. A first time ever on DVD, some of my best videos from 2010. So I hope that you will be uh, looking out for that. And once again, to all the people who are subscribers, thank you so much. I couldn't do it without you. That's it for this week of Corbett Report Radio, and I'm looking forward to doing it all again with you next week.